You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now to do just that, and we will pick up where we've left off as we've begun our trek and journey through the gospel of Matthew, and, and if this is one of the first times you've joined us, then uh, I, I want to—I believe if you if you if you'll grab a, a paperback Bible in one of the trays in front of you, don't be afraid of the table of contents. But if you grab one of the blue ones, you'll find us on page 471. You'll see the the kind of the large numbers are the chapters, and the the smaller numbers are the verses. And we'll be in chapter two, beginning in, in about the middle all the way, and we'll read to the end of chapter two. I want to also commend to you a resource that we've we've tried to put in people's hands. It served as a really great tool for us, and, and that is a you'll see in the lobby on the tables a Matthew journaling Bible. That is a way that you can take notes and study. Uh, for us, you you'll hear me talk about walking through books of the Bible. That's a metaphor. Obviously, we're not actually, you're sitting. Um, but uh, but it, the scripture speaks of walking as a metaphor for living. And in that sense, that it, we want to be careful. We're not just studying the Bible, although I encourage you to do that. I'll always make commendations. Hey, here's a chapter of the Bible. I want to commend you to read this afternoon. It's probably better than what you were probably going to do this afternoon anyway. Or, or I want you to, to memorize this. I want you to commit this to memory. If you had to show up here seven days from now and pass a test or a quiz on the content that we're trying to apply today, then I'd love for you to ace that, right? I hope, I hope the next you know, hour together helps encourage you and equip you to do that. But we're not only doing this for information. We're also doing this for transformation. And so the things that we read here, these timeless truths that we're invited to discover in the scripture, not only fill our brains, but they change our hearts. And so I want to invite you, when I, when I say open the Bible, we, we usually quote one of our, one of our old heroes uh, and, and kind of, uh, I, I kind of like paraphrase it, that we open the Bible and the Bible actually opens us. We think we begin to expose what's in the Bible. The word we'll use is exposit, right? We'll expose what's in the Bible, but really by the power of God's spirit, the Bible exposes us. And so I hope that when we open this together, we're, we're, we're looking for treasure. And I want to pick up where we've left off in this treasure hunt through Matthew, formerly known as Levi, an outsider, a tax collector, a traitor who was called by Jesus to new life and new identity and even a new name. And I'm giving away a whole lot that's going to happen in the next couple of months. But in the first couple of chapters, what we have from Matthew is an introduction to who Jesus is. An introduction to Jesus as a king, a Messiah. The word you'll hear used is the word Christ, Christos, which isn't his last name, right? Jesus isn't Jesus Christ, as that's his last name. That's his title. That is, that's a Greek translation of a, of a theme throughout the Old Testament, that there is a Messiah, there is a coming Savior who will solve all problems, who will heal all that's broken. And Matthew wants you and I to see that the solution to those problems is in the entrance and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, last week we saw that the first people who worshipped Jesus were outsiders. People who were far off. And if you've ever felt that way, then you're going to love the story of Matthew as he introduces you and I to Jesus. So I'll pick up where I left off. That The Magi, these three wise men, as it were. Magicians, right? Uh, kind of a mix between an astronomer and an astrologer. Came to worship Jesus in great joy. And so we'll pick that up in verse 10, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter, focusing on verses 23 through, excuse me, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 23. So beginning in verse 10, 
When they, that is the, the magi, Amagus in the singular, if you want to impress your friends, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child, that is Jesus, with Mary the mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, that is Jesus, and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's, left, the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, that is Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. Last week in Matthew's Gospel, we saw that the first people who worshipped Jesus rightly were outsiders. And this week we're introduced to a theme that Matthew will build for the rest of our time in his Gospel, and that is simply what I would describe as the threat of the Gospel. The threat of the Gospel. That word Gospel simply means good news. It means the good news of what God has done definitively, completely, and graciously for us in Jesus. A gift we receive. And yet, as beautiful and glorious as those of us who have experienced hope in Jesus, forgiveness, healing, and renewal, might find it to be, it is also here, as Matthew wants us to know, a threat. It's a threat. It is a dividing line. The good news of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished is not a neutral, it is not an impotent fact. It's a threat. 
And so there are three basic parts to this passage. So I want to point out the three kind of parts here and then multiple themes. This, this passage is full of helpful applications for you and for me. And so there's three basic parts, right? The, the first section, even if you're reading in an ESV, like maybe one of the paperback Bibles or a Bible you brought in, you'll see even the, 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 the editors who, who organized these things separated them by paragraph. So the verses 13 through 15, we see an escape to Egypt, the escape, the flight of Jesus with Mary and Joseph to Egypt. Verses 16 through 18, we see the massacre, the killing of innocent, an evil scheme that emerges from Herod. And then verse 19 through 23, we see a safe return to Nazareth. All of these things, every single one of them, Matthew wants you to know, is a fulfillment. So there are a few words that were repeated multiple times that help you understand what this is about. The, the first one you see four times as, as we overlap. The first one is the word dream shows up four times. That miraculously by God's spirit, warning and welcome are offered in dreams. God offers warning and deliverance and care for his people all the way through a dream, as if to introduce us to the possibility there's a supernatural reality working behind the scenes. The second word that shows up quite regularly, three different times in the passage we just read, is the word fulfill. Did you hear that? Fulfill. And every time Matthew uses that, we saw that last week, over 50 times Matthew is going to quote directly scriptures and themes and types from the Old Testament so that you and I will know that what God was doing in and through Jesus is not a mistake. It's not a plan B. It's one of the most powerful encouragements that you'll hear me repeat every single week in this is that there is not a plan B in God's gracious story in the world. And that ought to be comforting for you and I, right? I don't know what you originally intended to do today, this week, this last decade, and maybe for the entirety of your life, but I'd be willing to bet that what you're doing now is what, not what you originally wanted. I'd be willing to bet that where your life is now is not what you wrote out for yourself. I love that because the more people I talk to in Sioux Falls, I love this about our city, um, you know, there, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses to the, just the, the culture in which you and I are called to be faithful, but the more people I talk to who live in Sioux Falls, the more people I realize they're like, I don't know how I got here. Right? Like, I don't know why I got here. I don't know why. This is not what I thought, right? And, and on one hand, that, I, think, I think in our city that might cause a great deal of discouragement. I think most of the people you know are wondering why they're here and what they're doing. And maybe that's exactly what you're feeling right now. Why am I here and what am I doing, right? And we have something profound here. Is that the God of the universe who created everything to work in a way that brings joy to his people and glory to his name doesn't work that way. And so in a city that's usually confused about why we are where we are, and the more people I meet that are like, I don't know how I got here, the more I'm convinced God must be doing something. Why else would so many people be brought to the same place with no clue about why they are where they are or doing what they're doing? And you can choose to be baffled and filled with despair about that. I just want you to know I'm encouraged by it. Where do I get that? Repetitive use of that word, fulfill. Our God uses unlikely circumstances to fulfill his plan. And I hope that offers you encouragement every week that we're in this gospel. It's not an accident. You're not here by chance. It's much better than that. 
So you get a picture of God's deliverance through dreams, the theme of fulfillment in these three sections, and no fewer than four allusions or quotations directly from the Old Testament to say that the story of God's people that has been written here is the story of the world. And it's, in many ways, just the, the opening act. It's just the beginning of what God is doing in Jesus. In his flight here and in the killing of innocents, the, even in the evil schemes that do not stop what we see as a safe return, a providential protection for God's plan through Jesus. So I think what we find maybe two principles or themes in the midst of those is that you see the setting and the story of Jesus. Let's talk about both of those things. Matthew wants to see the background of the events from which Jesus came and into which Jesus entered. He wants you to see the setting. And so he quotes prophets from the Old Testament so that you'll understand where in the story Jesus is entering in. But as well as the setting, he wants you to begin to behold the story the story from which Jesus came, but also the story into which Jesus entered. In light of the Christmas season that even Christians around the world historically celebrate with the conclusion that, that includes epiphany, which is what? A celebration of the Magi seeing something. That is, seeing something that was revealed. And Matthew is telling a story of revelation. It's not just that he wants you to see something about Jesus that you might be able to ascertain or compute, but he wants you to see something in Jesus that will feel like is being revealed, like your eyes are being opened to something that you were staring at but didn't quite see. But notice, that story is dark, isn't it? Did you hear the middle section, this wicked scheme of Herod to kill and destroy innocent children? Historians would tell us that Based on the, what we know about the population of Bethlehem in this area, this was anywhere from 20 to 60 little boys, age two and below. And so one of the things that I think we're tempted to believe often is that like the story of God's grace for us is that there will be an immediate end to all of the darkness in the world. But that isn't the good news. The good news isn't there, is that there is an end to all the darkness immediately. The good news is that a light has entered into the darkness. And so Matthew tells us the setting and the story of darkness. And so Jesus' story, or the story Matthew tells us of Jesus' birth, and in this case through the chapter 2, his childhood, have no less than five of what we'll see throughout the Gospel of Matthew of 11 different formula quotations. Formulas that include a, a, quota, a quotation and then a specific application of how this is a fulfillment of what God was doing. And then, of course, there are many other allusions we'll point out. That is something that is alluded to, something in the story that points to Jesus being introduced as the Messiah. So the subject matter of these chapters, as the heading you'll see maybe in your Bible indicates, is the beginning of Jesus' life. But a better description that it, it seems like Matthew would probably agree with is this. This is the scriptural proof for the Messiahship of Jesus. That's what Matthew wants to convince you. Now, if you're in this room, and maybe you're like me, maybe you're skeptical of that. Maybe you're in this room and you're not a believer. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you just don't know. And I want you to know, you are welcome here. That is a good place to be. And we'll see even in this chapter why that is. But I want you to contend with the argument that Matthew is making. What do you make of a bunch of, a, of, a bunch of books written thousands and thousands of years ago specifically? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of different predictions 
and, and different prophecies that were specifically pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus. What do you make of that? With intellectual honesty, what do you make of the fact that Jesus seems to live out all of the things that were written hundreds and even thousands of years before? And Matthew wants to contend with that. So do I. So that you will, I believe, hear this good news. Jesus fulfills the promises of God for his people. I will try really hard over the months to come to find like new uh, creative ways to say this. But if you've been hanging around uh, our church, you'll get, you'll get the repetitive nature of what we do. I say the same thing every single week. Um, Jesus wins and we get to celebrate, right? Uh, and I try to find creative ways to do it. And I'll try to reword this. I'll use the thesaurus. But in the end, that's what, my, that's what Matthew wants you to know. God keeps his promises. And I shared with you a few weeks ago, the reason Christians harp on that, the reason we, the reason we are renewed by that, the reason why we re- repeat that and we rehearse that is because one of the ways you know you see a false God is that it doesn't come good on its promises. And the thing that you're pursuing in your own life that promises you the good life, it promises you joy, this will solve all your problems, this will give you lasting comfort, you know as well as I do it doesn't. And Matthew's just honest about that. It's a dark, broken world. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that light entering into that broken and dark world. And so we're introduced here to what a response to Jesus might look like. With a cruel leader, the murder of children, brokenness and wickedness and oppression. And we're meant to see something profound. That this story of God's redemption is not new. Let me point that out to you. So there's a flight to Egypt. Well, already even the setting includes names of places that have profound significance in the story of the Bible. First, Egypt. They departed and ran to Egypt. Well, if you've been hanging around any time or any amount of time with us, there's a rehearsal of a story that in many ways sets up our understanding of all of the Bible and who we see Jesus as. And that is, in this case, quite literally, Jesus is the true and better Moses. Matthew's trying to say, you remember how there was a cruel leader that killed children? You can, I, I, again, I commend this to you. Uh, read Exodus 20 to 22. Um, read the entirety of the book of Exodus, and you'll see the emergence at the first 10 chapters, and, or even, I would say 20 chapters of the figure of Moses includes a cruel Pharaoh who realizes that, that the people of Israel are multiplying in a way that what, that what? He feels threatened by. And so he issues an edict to kill all of the male children. These innocent male children starts to kill. And the story of Moses is how, miraculously, members of the royal family, right, related to the person making the edict to kill, save this, this Moses who was put in a basket, floats, by the Ni- you know, floats along the Nile, and just happens, right, just happens to be saved by this person who now raises him essentially as a prince of Egypt. That's irony, right? Kill them all. Oh, this was a cute one, and I'm going to adopt this one, right? And so we're meant to think like, oh, I've, I've heard this story before. Matthew's first readers are like, I, I think I've heard this story before. A crazy, tyrannical, insecure, threatened king starts killing children. And we're meant to see that Jesus is fulfilling a promise. Not that Moses explicitly said, hey, one will come after me. 
But even by Moses' life, right, and many other heroes that we would hold up in the Old Testament, they're all deeply dissatisfying. Do you remember how Moses' story ends? He's like, come on, guys, let's go to, the, let's go to, the new, let's go to this new place. Let's go to this promised land. It's going to be great, flowing with milk and honey. And he gets so frustrated with God's people. Like, everybody loves Moses, but nobody wants to be Moses, right? Helping a whole bunch of wandering, bickering, complaining people to get from one place to another. Because religious folk are real flexible and, and, and genius, right? And so, so he's wandering, and he gets so frustrated, God says, command, command for a rock to, to bring out water to feed the people and their, and their livestock. And Moses, instead of simply doing what God said, out of rage, he smashes the rock with, a, with his rod and said, and, and it threatens them, like, you wicked, awful people, which is true, but that wasn't what God asked them to do. And you remember what happened? Moses, because of his anger and frustration, doesn't get to see the promised land. And so even then, you're left with like a, man, I thought this was the guy. I thought Moses was the guy who was going to bring heaven to earth. And so in that sense, this fulfillment isn't like Moses said, one will come after me, but instead, like every other story of, of prominent leader and deliverer in the Old Testament, you're left like, man, this guy is not really all there is. He leaves much to be desired. And so, in that same way, as Moses didn't even get to see the promised land into which the people got to, got to go, so also we say, I've heard this story before. Rise and take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt. You hear the language of Abraham here. You hear the language, right, initially of, of even the story of Moses. And God, is, this is what I, would, I would, would point this to you. This is a principle of the story that I believe prepares us to see Jesus for who he is. It is God's grace to warn his people of danger to come. It is, it is actually a grace that God would in love warn you. Look how he does it for them. He says, like, look, take the child. Each, each time, he, notice he doesn't say, like, hey, you go. The, the, the deliverance is for the child. That is for Jesus. But more than once in this passage, we've seen God warn, whether it's the, the Magi or, Jer, or, or Joseph more than once, warning him of impending danger. And here, I, I want to put this... For most people, that will not feel like a kindness, right? When someone warns you, hey, if you keep doing what you're doing, it's going to end badly, right? That, that never feels like a kindness, does it? That feels like an attack, and it, it, it pokes at our insecurity, and we're like, Ugh, you know, like we feel personally threatened by that. And I want you to know that it is actually God's kindness that he would warn you, that he would say, if you keep going like you're going, there is nothing but danger here. And I say that because, in many ways, that's the kindness that the people of God share with one another. It is a kindness if, by God's grace, I actually warn you of the consequences and weight of your sin. It is a kindness when someone who loves you graciously comes and says, hey, that will destroy you. That thing you're doing won't end like you think it will. That thing you're chasing after, it won't give you what it promises. And that warning in that moment won't feel like mercy. It won't. Hey, the way you're relating to that person, that's going to end in destruction. Hey, if you don't get up and get out of that, it will destroy you. Did you hear the threat? The angel says, Herod is about to come and search for the child, even though he told the Magi, I wanna, I wanna oh yeah, I want to worship him too. 
And that evil scheme is revealed by the angel and a kindness and grace of God to warn Joseph and say, look, this is actually a destruction. And God, in his mercy, warns us. God, in his grace, says to you and to me, hey, that sin you're flirting with, it will kill you. You don't dabble with it and walk away. And so Matthew is telling us that one of the first places we begin to experience this story and understanding the setting in which it, from which it arises is, is a dark and sinful setting that, that in many ways requires a warning. Hey, this is worse than you think. Now, for many of you, that may not be hard to believe. But notice what we see here is that we begin to, we begin to understand. We saw a little bit of this last, last week, but we see it comes to full fruit here. Notice that that warning is of something that's happening with Herod. That is, there is a threat to the gospel. There is a threat. For those who would want to hold people down, for those who would want to control and manipulate people with lies, like, hey, I'm going to go worship him, and then they kill them. The gospel is a threat. That is, the good news that Christ has come to redeem his people is a threat for those who hold them captive. And Matthew is preparing us for all the great reversals of the kingdom. You'll see them. Earthly kings will slaughter the innocent to protect, their inno- to protect their own interests. But this king will be the innocent one slaughtered to make us all his children safe. Authority figures reject him because they recognize the threat that he is to them. I, I want to draw attention to that briefly before we moved on. You see, like, it says he rose and took the child by mother and his mother by night. You get the picture that like it happened urgently. Right? <laughs> Just imagine, like, I, I don't imagine that scenario. These people, uh, right, they, they've already had a pretty tumultuous beginning of their relationship up to this point, Joseph and Mary. Uh, and Joseph, by night, you get the picture in the middle of the night, says to, to Mary, hey, I just had a dream, and we're supposed to pack everything up and go to Egypt. Everything, let's go. I don't know how convincing that would be to you, but it says that they fled to Egypt. Now, you see God's grace in this as well. Uh, Josephus, the historian, a Jewish historian, will tell us that there were actually many communities in Egypt at that time, especially Alexandria, that had massive communities of Jewish people. Massive communities where they would be welcome and cared for. In fact, what we know is the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was translated in Egypt. And so there's this sense in which fleeing to Egypt is, is a kindness that God had already been working about for centuries before. And Joseph and Mary get to enjoy it. But the reason all this happens is in the very end of verse 15, this was to fulfill, here's that word again, what the Lord had spoken. This is how we understand the scriptures. The Lord speaks by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if, if, you'll look at your, if you can look at your own kind of footnotes there, you'll, you'll see that this is, in many ways, an allusion or quotation to Hosea chapter 11. If you go read it, you'll, you'll find it to be interesting because Hosea doesn't say anything about a coming king or Messiah. Instead, he just simply is recounting, in the middle of exile, God's deliverance from the exodus. And so Matthew is saying something. Do you remember that story? about God's deliverance from a tyrannical king to save his people from bondage? This is what it's really about. Verse 16, second section here. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, I love that, like the only wise thing that the the wise men actually do is just 
what they experienced in a dream by God's wisdom, right? They tricked Herod. He became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older and two years old and under. The story becomes dark. Here's what I want you to see in this section. Responses to Jesus are extreme. They're extreme. Jesus is still a conversation that divides and brings tension. And Matthew wants you to know that's not an accident. In fact, that's one of the first parts of this story. Jesus is still a topic of conversation that will divide and bring tension. Matthew will draw attention to this later on in the story. Because ultimately, who you serve as Lord will cause division and conflict. And this is a theme. Jesus will be the deliverer that God provides even in the midst of those evil schemes, even in the midst of a stark contrast of response, the worship of people who are far off and the rejection of this earthly king. Because Jesus coming as king and fulfilling all of the longings of everyone's heart is a, threaten to the, is a threat to those who would prefer those titles themselves. Just think about it. If I, the thing that you love and you pour yourself into, it feels like an attack if I told you, yeah, Jesus is going to come to rule over that. It feels like an attack if I tell you, hey, that thing won't satisfy you. That thing won't deliver on its promises. Pour your life into that and you will find it to be a waste. And that's a threat, isn't it? Because if that person or thing was in the room, they wouldn't like to hear you say that, right? They wouldn't like to hear me say that. What do you mean I won't give them everything I've delivered on? What do you mean I won't be able to make them happy and healthy? What do you mean I won't be able to give them prosperity that they want, right? That, that will feel like a threat. Make no mistake about it. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is still a topic of conversation that is a threat. And I want to share this with you just in, in many different ways. Maybe for those of the skeptics in the room, if you're not a believer, think of it this way. As, a, as an invitation for you to be intellectually honest about who Jesus is and what he claims. And for those of us in the room, maybe we're, we're lulled to sleep by the story of Jesus. It doesn't excite us. Think about what Matthew is trying to tell us. Responses to Jesus are extreme. They have to be. And so one of the most intellectually dishonest, one of the most dangerous places to be is to be mild about Jesus. One of the most dangerous places to be is to be, in many ways, milk toast about Jesus, to be tepid, to be unenthusiastic about Jesus. In many ways, Herod gets right who Jesus is. In many ways, Herod, though responding in, in sinful and wicked ways, sees Jesus better than many of us. If you see what Jesus is coming to do, there's only one of a few options. A paraphrase John Stott here is that you'll either, you'll either need to run from him or you'll need to fight him or you'll need to worship him. It would be intellectually dishonest to do anything else. And if you're like, oh, Jesus is a good teacher, you've never actually read the teachings of Jesus. He says, drink my blood, eat my flesh, hate your father and mother to follow me, take up your cross and, and follow me, otherwise you can't even be my disciple. I and the father are one. If you reject me, you reject the father. If you've seen me, you've seen, that's a crazy person. That's not a good teacher. 
And either he is crazy and you should run from him, and like Herod, you should do everything in your power to shut him up and everyone else around him, or consider the possibility that he's king, that he's Lord. The greatest enemy, or the greatest lie of the enemy on this one is that you can somehow be mild and unenthusiastic in your response. Is that you can hear who Jesus is and go about your day. Friend, if that's what you've done, then you haven't actually seen Jesus. And so, Matthew tells us Jesus is a topic that will cause conflict. Jesus is a, a, a topic that demands an extreme response. It demands it. And so if you're in the room and you're like, oh, I'm just, I'm just kind of investigating who Jesus is, man, do it. But here, I want to warn you, if you hear what he says, you will have one of a few options. You will either need to, like Herod, who, again, think, he sees it. He actually gets it. Like the threat to his kingdom on earth, he actually gets. And he responds wickedly. Uh, it, you know, in many ways, like builds a great scheme to stop it from happening. And you will either see your own life as a, a strange and elaborate scheme to remain on the throne, like Herod, or you'll worship him. But make, make no mistake about it, there's no such throne in the universe that's a love seat. Right? No one shares it. And so one of the worst things that you can do is to think that you can be enthusiastic about Jesus and this other thing. But notice what happens. Listen how it ends. I mean, this, this, this in many ways, let's look at the setting here and see how that leads to the conclusion of this, even in this passage. The setting we hear, remember, we already heard a little bit about Egypt to let us kind of in on what's being fulfilled in this story of God's redemption. But then he does it again. He mentions Bethlehem, and then he quotes Jeremiah. And I want to commend this to you as well. Jeremiah 30 and 31. I commend them to you for study this this week because you'll see the picture of this new covenant coming in Jesus. But in the middle of it, there's this strange, and you'll see if you if you have a kind of footnote there in the 15th verse of Jeremiah 31, this quote that he pulls out, a voice was heard in Ramah. Well, where's that, right? Weeping and loud lamentation about Rachel. Well, who's that? Well, let me tell you. Rachel was in this sense a mother of Israel, a mother of God's people. And even, even then, we, we think of like, uh, as, as Rachel was in, in many ways, like was the favorite, but died on the way to the promised land, giving birth, right? There is, it, it, there's this picture of like, there's no greater act of motherhood, isn't there, than to die to bring this child into, into existence? And so Joseph and Benjamin, their children, were both in many ways scattered in the two kingdoms of Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And in 722, the, uh, we find out, as we, as we just saw in Ezra and Nehemiah, that that the Babylonians began to scatter these people. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, in 722 scattered the north. That would have been, in that sense, one of Rachel's children. And then in the southern kingdom, we saw in 586, when Jerusalem was destroyed, scattered in the south. And so Jeremiah is talking about something. He's saying God's going to do something, but it's going to happen in the midst of an awful exile. And so the two pictures of the setting here is the, the lamentation that existed over that exile, and, and, and we're meant to, meant to have a little bit of Bible trivia here. 
Do you know where they gathered the people before they sent them off and deported them? Ramah, some 10 miles from Bethlehem. And Matthew wants you to see again, this, this light that comes into the world comes into a dark world. And this evil scheme to kill, to destroy innocent children is a powerful picture of what it means to react to Jesus coming as king himself. And thankfully, God sends messengers to warn of danger. He's merciful and gracious. So here does it conclude in that last section. Well, there's a few good things that happened. They were to flee from this awful atrocity. Verse 19, but when Herod died, I love that. They fled, and then the angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream again, saying, it's time, like, rise, take the child. Again, not, not saying this, anything about himself, but take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who saw the child's life are dead. Remember when I told you how there's no, there's no milk toast or medium or mild response to Jesus and who he claims to be and what he offers to us? You should either run, rebel, or like this, create some elaborate scheme to shut him and his people up, or you should worship him as king. But notice where the story ends. The thing that threatened Jesus, the thing that threatened God's plan, died. So in that sense, the thing that you're really fired up about that's not Jesus the thing on the throne that's threatened when Jesus enters into the story is on notice. The thing that is at the center of your attention and enthusiasm in your life is on death row. And that will either terrify you because you love it and worship it, or it will be the greatest news you've ever heard because you know how dark it is. You know how unsatisfying it is. And God sends messengers to warn of danger, but he also sends messengers to tell us that the enemy, the schemes of the enemy, cannot prevail. God's plan cannot be stopped by the schemes of the wicked. They can't. And so notice here, the thing that threatened them, God in his mercy warned them to flee so that his plan of redeeming the world would come to pass. And then he invites them again speaks to them again and says, come, and, and notice he says there's, there's a fear here, but the people who are going to kill this one, they're dead, they're gone, but the son of Herod, even though it struck fear in them, also led to, as we see in verse 22, another warning in a dream to instead of simply returning, as they probably would have, back to Jerusalem, instead to go to, notice here, to Galilee, where you'll see, especially in John's gospel, but we'll see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, where Jesus did and began most of his ministry, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, you hear this story later, and the gospel writers tell us this, right? One of the first, one of the first introductions to Jesus, hey, there's this guy, he's from Nazareth. And one of the first objections is like, can anything good come from Nazareth? There's a lot going on here. I want to point out just a few of them, a few of the things. This fulfillment of this prophetic word that Jesus would be from Nazareth is an introduction, as we started the, the beginning of, of the Gospel of Matthew, to consider who Jesus came for. Right? Because everybody, when you're insecure and afraid, you need someone else to like look down on, 
you need someone, right? Every state has it. For us, it's Iowa, right? <laughs> or not, or whatever, fill in the blank, right? Maybe you're from Iowa, and it's like, I'm here. This is it. This is, I live in Nazareth. I'm in South Dakota, and this is Nazareth, right? Can anything good come from South Dakota, right? Everyone needs that. But even in, even, think about this, even in Galilee, even the Galileans who were outsiders, not living in the city, even they had someone to look down on, and it was the, the Nazarenes, the people from Nazareth. And it's, don't you think it's funny? Don't you find the irony in God's grace? That place, you're like, can anything good? Oh, right? Like, it's like the place where you would think, and, and this, this man, this pervades our culture, isn't it? Like pedigree, race, standing, prosperity, money, these, these things that give us meaning, right? The savior of the universe is going to turn all of those things upside down. This guy is going to be a nobody from nowhere. And so that you will know that God's miraculous grace is at work, it won't conform to any of the norms of the world. This baby who escaped murder is going to start a ministry of the nobodies. That ought to be a helpful, humbling, right? That ought to be a helpful, humbling reminder of who we are in Christ. We're one of my pastor friends who who pastors in a rural Wisconsin. He started a group, and we talk about it as like we're in pastoring. We're, we're gospel nobodies. Known by God, not necessarily by anyone else. And so we're meant to be comforted. This thing that God's going to do, it's going to come from nowhere. Don't look at your beginnings or your pedigree or your own standing and think that that tells the story. This story's bigger, and the setting proves it for Matthew. So look, some of the applications I think we can take from this. God fulfills his promise, but we get a picture of this really dark, this, this dark verse 16 through 18 about Herod. And I think, I think Matthew might be at least kind of encouraging us to think this way. He tells us a very grotesque and graphic and awful story. I love how honest the Bible is. Because when we minimize the nature and effects of sin, we miss out on the nature and effects of Christ's finished work. Matthew's the only gospel writer that tells us this. Now, make, make no mistake about it. He's trying to make a case that Jesus is Moses. He's telling a story of a baby born and delivered through a violent circumstance. So we'll be like, oh, there's a new deliverance, right? I mean, you're going to see this. I, I hate to tip my hand, but here we go, right? There's going to be a sermon on a mount. Is there any story in the Bible where somebody came on a mount giving God's word to people? Moses, right? So th this is the story that he's been telling us. But he does it in a way that's really honest, and I hope you're comforted by this. The Bible never like, glosses over the awfulness of sin in the world. It never does. And that's especially encouraging if you've been sinned against. If you, if you come into this place with deep wounds and scars, effects of other people's sin, we're meant to be encouraged. God does not take that lightly. God doesn't gloss over that. God knows it and delights to bring it to light, not to shame it, but to show the kind of work that God's grace really does in the darkness, in the awfulness, in the wicked schemes of the enemy even. So Israel comes out of Egypt, it comes out of Egypt by Moses, but we come out of slavery to sin because of Christ. The Lord speaks here, and Matthew is compelling you and I to consider that Jesus is coming as a king that is a threat to earthly powers. 
the response to Jesus is extreme. God's plan cannot be stopped. In that sense, don't be too hard on Herod. That might sound strange. It might sound crazy. What I mean is, don't be so hard on Herod that you think you're not capable of those kinds of wicked schemes. Don't take a place to where you think Herod is doing something you would never do. You've just never been king and had that much power. But you would do the same thing. And it invites us to consider in the response of Herod what it means to push against Jesus. And I'll say it this way. Any area in your life where you're driven by insecurity or defensiveness is a scheme of the enemy. And if you don't believe me, if you think that's not possible, do me a favor. Here's a great act of courage. Find a friend, a spouse, somebody loves and cares for you, and ask them that question. Hey, is there any area in my life that's marked by defensiveness? Is there any area in my life that's marked by insecurity? Is there any area in my life where because of my fear of losing control or losing that thing, that I tend to lash out at people who don't deserve it? And if you're brave, you'll ask someone you love. And I'd say that, not, again, not to shame you, but to tell you, that's the place where Jesus offers grace. That's the place where Jesus wants to sit on the throne and not reign like Herod, but be a king who dies for his people. And make no mistake about it, your, your insecurity and defensiveness and fear will make you a hero outside in the world. It will make you a Herod inside God's people. I know cheesy alliterations. It's like, I, I hope you remember it. There's one letter between hero and Herod. And in the world, we see it one way, but man, cheesy, cheesy songs get remembered, right? But in God's people, it's Herod. And your insecurity might work out there, but just notice here, it just reminds us of what we were like when we didn't want Jesus to sit on the throne either. And you're welcome. You're welcome. But we see your insecurity for what it is. Don't worry. Jesus will heal it. Jesus will fix it. Join the club. But idolatry will make you do that. Whenever you realize that ultimate reality in the universe isn't wrapped up in the thing that you can take by force and fear, you're freed from the need to take force. And so I want you to have such deep relaxation and rest in Jesus like this in the midst of horrible circumstances. Because make no mistake about it, this is a story about Jesus coming into the horror story, isn't it? And we're capable of awful things when we work against God. When we let fear lead, inevitably we inflict harm. We also see a picture of a theme that the scripture tells us, and I'll end on this, is children in the Bible always serve as a, a revelatory factor of people and motives, right? How people respond to children, it, it tells something about their character. In the end, it tells us, like, because how you think of children or the people who are helpless is how you see yourself before God. If you think like, well, you know, they'll grow out of it or they'll get better or they'll, fit, right? That, that's how you kind of see yourself before God. But if you see children as like a weak helpless things that apart from mercy won't make it, you're, you get the picture. And so the Bible tells us stories of children so that we'll understand where we stand before God. And so we're meant to see like, whoa, Herod clearly did not get it, right? Look how he treated the innocent. 
Matthew wants us, to see, wants us to see in this that people are trying to kill Jesus from the beginning. There was not a time when the world and the enemy did not want to stop what God was doing. God didn't come into a world that welcomed him. God loves a world that rejects and actively opposes him. One of my favorite stories of this, of how children reveal this, is one of my favorite stories in the entirety of the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. It's a story of the city of Samaria. It's sieged, and things are so awful that two women get together and agree to, to eat. So that they'll, so they'll survive, they agree to eat one of their children today, and they'll eat the other child another time. Right? You, get, you get the picture, you're like, how awful would it be that a mother would kill and eat their own children? Right? This, it's, it's a picture of how awful it would be. And the story goes on that God sends these lepers who are rejects and outsiders, get the idea, and they're like, well, we'll just run and trust God, and God scares off the enemy right? Runs off the enemy, and then they get to discover all the, the, like the, the loot from, from the enemy leaving, and then they go and tell the city, hey, God destroyed the enemy, and guess what happened? Some people didn't believe them. But in the middle of that, just hear the, the powerful testimony. It was the city full of people that were willing to eat their own children that God sent the unlikely hero to save. And you'll think, no, there's no way God would redeem or restore my world. It's too broken. Did you hear this story? That's the world Jesus entered into to redeem. Not another one. That one. That broken one. God saves that city. And that's meant to invite us to see what this king is really like. The dream warns that they should run. But the dream also is God's message to Joseph and Mary that it's safe to return because the schemes of the enemy have not prevailed. And the enemy that once terrorized them is dead. And Jesus is not. Herod did his best in his wicked response. Herod threw his worst to stop what God was doing, to take his rightful throne. And because of God's grace towards us in Christ, the enemy that wants to consume and destroy you is dead. I love that. Like, hey, all the things that sought the child's life, you see this in verse 20? Dead. Dead. They were on notice. The wicked schemes of the enemy are on death row. And there's a deliverance that comes through darkness and mourning here that we're invited to participate in an experience in Christ. And through these dreams, through these messages given to us, we realize that Jesus will outlast these schemes and he will lead his people to outlast them as well. Herod dies. He's dead. The thing that was a threat was outlasted. Now, Here's the thing. I know many of you, Jazz alluded to this last week, many of you wish you could have a dream, right, to warn you and to tell you this, and I'm sorry, I didn't get a dream either. Uh, God just gave me a dad who, who shared the gospel with me, and I'm sorry you don't get a dream. It's really disappointing. You get me. <laughs> I'm your angel. <laughs> I know, that feels sickening. Fear not. <laughs> Don't worry, we weren't, right? <laughs> Maybe God will give you a dream to warn you and to welcome you. But here's the thing. He's been merciful enough to draw you to this place. He's been kind enough to respond 
to our sinfulness by drawing us into this place so that you would hear me say, the enemy that threatens you, the enemy that holds you hostage, sin and its effects, dead. Jesus, not dead. Because of Christ, that thing that holds you as hostage has no power over you. Sin will have no power over you because of Christ. Only to tempt you and to tease you and to distract you and torment you. And maybe that's what sin did for you this last week. And it wore you down and filled you with despair. Friend, that's all it can do. It can tease and torment because before Christ, it must vacate its throne. Death has no power over you. Only but to deliver you to the presence of God. Oh, you're going to kill me, Paul says? You're going to put me next to Jesus. Might as well do it quick. Hell has no power over you. There is now no punishment, no condemnation for you and I in Christ Jesus. The grave has no power over you. One day, because of Christ, your body will be six feet under if you're lucky. And no one will carry on a meaningful conversation there because you won't be there. You'll be with Jesus. And the thing that threatens to rob you of joy and meaning in this life and the next, we see here is no match for the work of God to deliver us. The thing that torments you, the thing that causes you to despair, I, I want you to hear me very clearly. The gospel is a threat. And if you want to take the throne, then hear, hear that as, hear, it's, right, it's, it's not an idle threat, right? Not a manipulative threat, like if you don't do this, I'm gonna, it is an actual, like, no, there is a, there is a king that's coming and you're gonna to want to get off the throne. And if, like Herod, you want to do everything you can to hold on to power, friend, buckle up. It's going it's to get painful. Jesus doesn't share the throne with anyone. But here's the thing. If you'll take an honest look at your life and know that you have a lot more in common with Herod than you realize, if you take an honest look at your life and realize that some of the things in your own life that sit on the throne are things like fear and sin, regret, despair, and I have good news for you. I have a threat for all those things that torment, torment you by sitting on the throne in your life. They will be gone. The things that want to claim your life will be dead. And Jesus will not. His resurrection is a, is a powerful message for you and I that the things that hold us hostage are on notice. The things that threaten the schemes of the enemy to destroy our lives and the world will not get the last word. And God will warn us into safety and welcome us back into a place where there is no death, no enemy. Death will have lost its sting and hell will have no power over us because of Jesus. Let's pray and thank God for that. Jesus, thank you so much. You come as a king unlike any other king. God, we, we see earthly power in kings and, and we, we often see Herod. We even see the way that we torment ourselves and the decisions we make and we, we see Herod. And, and so I thank you that your, in, your entrance as a king isn't like any other. Like you tell your disciples, you, you don't lead and rule like the Gentiles. You serve. You don't come to be served, but you come to serve and be a ransom for your people. Thank you. Thank you for the stark contrast 
of your kingdom and kingship and the kingship of the world that Matthew tells us. God, we ask for deliverance from the Herods of the world that rain down terror. But we also ask for deliverance from the Herod that sits on the throne of our own heart that will do anything, do anything to maintain power. Thank you, Jesus, that you come and you are a good, you are a good king. That your threat to earthly power is also a threat to sin, death, and hell. That we now know you come as a, a king to, to remove tyrants. You come as the new Moses to deliver us from sin and the bondage and slavery in which it holds us. Thank you that you have done that. Thank you that you have completed that on our behalf. God, if there's skeptics in the room, those who wouldn't call themselves believers, would today, even, even now, would they, would they begin to consider the claims of Jesus? Would they see the the lasting effects of Jesus to, to fulfill a greater story, might they today by faith have their eyes open to their invitation into that story? For those of us, maybe we just have a, a tepid and mild and unenthusiastic response about Jesus. Help us to repent of all the things that demand our enthusiasms. Help us to turn from all the things that grip us with fear and insecurity and defensiveness. Help us to find deep rest. Help us to experience great enthusiasm and joy in the gift that is given to us that is Jesus. Help us to have a real epiphany, a revelation of how good and kind you are to us in Jesus. By the perfect example that he lived in his life, the sufficient sacrifice in his atoning death, and the vindication of his resurrection. Give us life by this in his name we ask it. Amen.